Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we get into today's episode, I've got three important updates for you. If you want to increase your success with mid-level and major gift fundraising, you need to grab a copy of Rainmaking, the Fundraiser's Guide to Landing Big Gifts. This book is in use by more than 3,000 nonprofits and has helped raise over a quarter of a billion dollars for charitable causes since 2013. As a leader and practitioner in the nonprofit sector, you may also be looking for a guide to help you navigate some of the biggest challenges that you face. That's why in 2019, I brought together 28 key leaders and fundraisers from across our sector to share their insights and help leaders like you avoid making costly mistakes. My newest book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them, is currently in the hands of more than 1,500 nonprofit leaders, helping them to navigate those key challenges. It can help you too. And you can get either of these resources or both of them simply by going out to Amazon today. The third thing that I've got for you is a request. If you enjoy this podcast and the conversations we have, I'd greatly appreciate you going out to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen and doing two things. If you can go out and give us a rating, then write us a brief review, I'd really appreciate it. Those two things help us find other listeners and they help me continue to secure great guests that'll bring valuable content and insights to you. So please take a minute today to go out and give us a rating and a quick review. It'll only take a minute to do. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Welcome today. This is Andrew Olson, and I'm here with Sarah Lee, the Chief Operating Officer at News Story. She's been with their organization for almost five years now and has held the role of Chief Brand Officer and Chief Growth Officer. Prior to joining News Story, Sarah spent six years at Syrup Marketing, leading account management and brand strategy for a range of clients. We're excited to have her here today to talk with us about their culture, the organization, and leadership. Sarah, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Andrew. Really excited to be here. Hey, uh, before we get into uh, the, the core questions that we have today, take a few minutes, if you would, and tell us a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about uh, who New Story is and what you all do. Yeah, for sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I've been on the team for about five years now. We are a relatively young team. So the organization has been around for, uh, we just had our sixth birthday or anniversary, whichever category you want to put that in. Um, so was one of the first members on the team outside of our three co-founders. I think I was the uh, sixth hire. And it's been super fun and insane to see the growth that we've had over those last six years. So we have offices in Atlanta and San Francisco, getting ready to start an office in Mexico City. Um, and so I am part of our Atlanta office. I'm headquartered in Atlanta, of course, uh, now in 2021. And last year, spending a lot more time in Atlanta than I'm currently or traditionally used to <laughs> with my role. Um, and so it's been fun to have some more time here, more time at home, uh, trying to see the silver lining in that. New story as a whole, kind of our focus is on pioneering solutions to end global homelessness. And so for us, that looks like building communities around the world. Today, we work in Haiti, El Salvador, Bolivia, and Mexico. But really more than just building homes, we're focused on how can we make this process cheaper, higher quality, and faster. Because as I am sure you recognize, homelessness is a massive problem. It impacts about 1.6% billion people and growing. And so we're focused on not just building the homes, but also really figuring out how do we make this more scalable? So as the problem grows, the amount of people impacting that total need can also, you know, change and grow with it. 
So that's fascinating to me. And it's something that I've been really intrigued by as I've watched um, your organization online. I, I've been struck by the fact, you know, I've been working with nonprofits for about 20 years now. And when I look at how you all operate, at least from, uh, from an external perspective, you sure look a whole lot more like a corporate startup than you do a nonprofit. React to that for me. Uh, that's very intentional. So I'm, I'm glad that you feel that. I think that culturally and with our team, most of our team does not come from nonprofit backgrounds. They come from agency backgrounds, tech backgrounds, uh, lots of different places. And most of our donors also are more compelled by and have a larger foot in the door with for-profit investments than they mm. do nonprofit investments. And so, you know, we fundamentally really believe that nonprofits should be hired held to a higher standard, not a lower one, right? A lot of times we all lower the bar for nonprofits. We're like, oh, well, the brand isn't great or the communication isn't great or the you know, resources aren't great, but they're a nonprofit, so it's fine. And we are really you know, working on ourselves and really hope to help the industry as a whole, right? Recognize that to solve the world's biggest problem, you have to have not only the brightest people on those, but you really do have to approach it just like the people who are trying to, you know, make the most revenue, right? And have the biggest tech impact and all of these other things. So it's definitely a core tenet of how we think about our brand and how we think about our mission. No, that's that's fascinating to me. It's really exciting because I, I would agree with you. I think there's so often organizations are held back by focusing on what they don't have or what they haven't been able to achieve, rather than saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what, what applications can we learn from somewhere else, bring them in-house, and just do this differently to be more effective? So um, it's, it's very encouraging to see an organization that's actually living that. Talk a little bit, if you will, about how that impacts actually like your service model, right? So what are you out swinging hammers, building, you know, concrete homes and, 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 you know, brick and mortar type work? What, like, what does that look like for you? And how is that different based on your business model? Yeah, good question. So it's definitely a balance, right? Because what we don't want to do is just bring in technology and innovation and doing things different for the sake of technology and innovation, right? It only matters if it's actually helping the problem and impacting more families. And so on the one hand, some of our work is very traditional in what you would expect, right? So in the 2,500 homes we built, those are built using local labor, buying local materials. A lot of them are built with processes like you would expect, right? Cinder block, simple homes. Um, but on the flip side, we're trying to inject technology and innovation on the places that can really impact those three areas that I mentioned, cost, speed, and quality. And so, you know, one of the things that got us a lot of attention over the last three years is completing the world's first 3D printed community. So we worked with Partners Icon to take this 3D printing home technology down to rural Mexico, 3D print homes for families in need under the hypothesis that it could help us build more homes faster and cheaper, right? And so, we are willing to take risks that other nonprofits either can't take because of their funding model or they won't take because they feel like they know the answer and they're just going to keep doing that same solution. And so organizationally, we're always looking at what is our biggest problem, which for us, for the most part, it's the cost per intervention, right? A home is a lot more expensive than a single meal, a right. single shot, right? Whatever. And so 
we're consistently looking at how are we driving that cost down and how are we doing it faster. Sometimes, like I mentioned, that's really sexy things like 3D printing. Sometimes it's not so sexy. Sometimes it's a survey tool that lets that our on-the-ground partners survey families way faster to save time in the process. So it's really a wide spectrum, and it's something that we are constantly looking for, right? There's no one silver bullet that's going to solve a problem this big. And so we're constantly iterating and testing to figure out how can we continue to get better and faster and cheaper in all of these things while not reducing quality? And how can we take advantage of existing systems and structures, things like construction, <laughs> right? And make the most of those to have the greatest impact as well. Okay. I've got two follow-ups for you on that. One programmatic, one fundraising. I'm going to start with the fundraising. I suspect that because you're doing things differently uh, and because you're really looking at it as how, how do we solve these issues rather than just how do we kick the can to next month, uh, that you probably have donors who get really engaged, that are really excited by the fact that you know, they can see that their, their gift or their investment is actually going to bring something to fruition more than just, like you said, you know, maybe providing a meal for a day or something like that. Am I right in that assumption? You're right in that assumption. And I'll take it one step further. One of the ways we've set up our fundraising processes is that we have a 100% model. So when somebody donates a new story, they are either just donating to our operations, which is everything from my salary and travel to capital expenses like a 3D printer, right? We have about 60 families who contribute just to our operations mm. so that everyone else who donates, 100% of that goes directly to the hard costs associated with the home. And so okay. that organizationally gives us a lot of flexibility. But like you just mentioned, on the donor side, it really does group our donors into two buckets. And you're exactly right. On our operational donors, it's people who are super invested. They understand making a long-term investment and that there's going to be short-term wins and losses but that it's headed towards something much bigger. And then on the home funding side, we also connect our donors uh, directly with the family. So they get to see a picture and learn a little bit about the family they're building a home for, which just increases transparency. Mm -hmm. It increases how excited people are about getting to take a step in this direction because it really does feel and is so real to them because they can put a face to it. That's really cool. Okay. So my, my second question on the program side, you know, I've, I've worked in, domestic homelessness services for two decades. I got to believe there are applications for what you're bringing to uh, other countries in the US. Are, do you have operational footprint here serving homeless communities? And, and are, are you involved in that? Or is, am I wrong? You're not wrong. There are definitely applications. However, the root causes tend to be very different, right? Okay. Yep. Internationally, a lot of the root cause really is around the cycle of poverty, right? Now that impacts the homeless population in the US, but it may not be, it is not the largest percentage of the cause for that. So gotcha. that's kind of a underlying message. Now with that, I will say in 2020, uh, News Story did run some rent relief programs in the US, which we very much viewed as kind of disaster recovery, right? Because of COVID related job loss sure. for the most vulnerable families. Long-term, how we think about it is all of these, you know, innovations that we're working to prove in our communities internationally, we're not keeping those for ourselves. We are taking all of those and really sharing them with the sector as a whole, whether that's governments who are building, you know, low-income social housing or other nonprofits who are focused on this issue as well. And so 
we very much view, you know, long term that there will be many partners in the U.S. who hopefully will be able to benefit from our tools and technologies and learnings and programs and processes that we're also using internationally and that they will really be able to be the implementing partners of those here in the U.S. because they so much more deeply understand the problems here than we do. So that's really interesting to me. I mean, it's another, I think, differentiator in your business model and just the way you approach the sector, similar to, uh, for example, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So St. Jude only has, you know, I'm going to get the number wrong, but somewhere between 60 and 100 beds. If, mm-hmm. if you look at their media and their marketing, they look like this massive healthcare system. Their model, though, is we do the research and then we share it out broadly so that hospitals and, and healthcare providers across the globe can have their patients benefit from it. It feels like that's also kind of the approach that, you, that you've just described, which is very different from a lot of organizations that are very kind of protectionist minded and afraid that, well, if we share this with somebody, they'll do it better with us than us, and then they'll get our donors. Yeah. Talk to me about how you've avoided that kind of mentality. Two things come to mind. In the beginning, uh, you were talking just a little bit about you know, how the teams are set up. And it made me think almost it's the difference between a scarcity and abundance mindset, right? And what you just described is exactly that. If people either think, I got to get mine, because otherwise I won't. Or they think, hey, we're all actually going to help each other. And we're all going to raise each other up by growing individually. And so, you know, we often internally say, nonprofits should not have intellectual property, right? Like, mm-hmm. Fundamentally, if you actually care about the problem that you are working every day to solve, you can't have intellectual property, right? Because it shouldn't matter if you're doing it or the nonprofit down the street is doing it if people are being impacted. And so that is very core to our DNA, how we think about everything, how we solve problems. We are constantly trying to learn from others who have been there before us, as well as share with others. Because, you know, with any massive problem, but with our problem specifically, 1.6 billion people is a ton of people. And we are not naive enough to think that we alone are going to impact that many people. But if we can all come together with our best resources and learning and tools and technologies and all of these things, ultimately more people are going to be impacted. And that's what we care about. It doesn't matter if new story names on the front or somebody else's the families being impacted ultimately are what matters. That's a really bold position to stake out. And I really like it. Um, it's very different from what we typically hear. So um, talk to me a little bit from a leadership perspective about what you feel are the most important values at New Story. Yeah, our values culturally are hugely, hugely important to us. I think that, you know, we have all worked with or for companies that say, we care about our values. And it's, you know, five words that are plastered on a wall somewhere and you never hear anything else about them. We work really hard and really intentionally to ensure our values are core to our DNA and that they are core to how everyone operates. And so two of the values, we have uh, six values, two of them that I would say are maybe the the leaders of the pack (laughs) would be, one is humble pursuit of excellence. And that is the idea of, you know, the balance of excellence and the drive for doing things the best way possible, being the best, achieving all of this, and balancing that with humility, right? And I think we've all worked with people that have the excellence part down pat, or they have the humility part down pat. 
But the blend of those two, I think, is very rare and is something that we are consistently looking for to add to our team, as well as looking to cultivate within our team. Um, another one is team of founders. I think when people, you know, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, right? Founders mindset, team of founders, yep. whatever you want to call it. A lot of people think about that as everyone's willing to take out the trash, right? <laughs> Anyone's willing to do any task. I think there's truth to that, but we really think about this value as your ability to look at how whatever you are doing within the organization has broader implications. So instead of just trying to check a box, you're also thinking about who else is ultimately going to touch this or be impacted by it. And how can I do it in such a way that is acting in the best interest of the organization and acting in the best interest of my teammates, right? So those are kind of a couple of the values that, that really come to mind in terms of being the most important ones at our organization um, and a little bit about how they manifest. Oh, cool. So kind of on a similar vein, I want to talk about culture for a minute. And I'm particularly curious to know, um, because you have a, a distributed uh, workforce across the country uh, and just because of what's going on in the last 12 months, how are you going about building and, and cultivating a, a healthy and thriving culture in the organization, given those challenges? I would say the biggest differentiator at New Story and the biggest way that we truly ensure that we have a healthy and thriving culture is that we are relentless about measuring and tracking it. Mm. So we do uh, quarterly surveys with our entire team around everything that impacts culture, right? Cross-departmental communication. Do you feel like your manager cares about you as a person? How well do you feel like your feedback is taken from the executive team? Um, do you feel like you're getting enough feedback from your manager, right? All of these different questions. I think there's about 20 of them that we're asking every quarter. And that allows a couple things. One, it lets us see trends over time, right? So during a really busy season, how's our culture impacted compared to an easier season? Um, what are the areas that we currently really need to be focused on improving? Um, and what are the areas that we do a really good job at, right? <laughs> what are the things that come a bit more natural that we can double down on? And so culture is really, really hard because a lot of people talk about it. Everyone talks about it. It's a wide spectrum between if people think it's having scooters in the office or, you know, OKRs or how you're tracking things or whatever. I fundamentally believe that you can have a healthy and thriving culture with all different spectrums of benefits and, and work styles and work ethics and all of these things. But you're not gonna actually know, do the people who make your culture <laughs> think it's healthy and thriving if you're not consistently asking them and having the systems and processes in place to really know that more than just you know how you feel when you are in the office. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So uh, let's pivot that a little bit. Um, talk to me about uh, if, and if so, how you integrate the needs, hopes, and desires of both your donors and those you're serving into you know, your organizational sort of vision casting and strategic planning processes. What roles do they play and do they sit at the table? They rarely sit at the table on the front end. Um, so our impact team really does lead what are the year-to-year -year, uh, needs and desires for the communities that we're serving. Where they sit at the table is what is their process within that, right? So actually right now we're right in the thick of doing some donor serving, which is 
talking more around how are we communicating to them? What do they wish they knew more about? What do they wish they knew less about, right? How does all of that manifest versus getting with them to say, where do you want to fund homes? Like, we'll go find homes out of that. All of that is led by our impact team. Um, and, and of course, you know, those are the people who are on the ground. They're seeing the needs. They are best suited to speak into those issues. Um, whereas for the most part with our donor base, they're not the best people to speak into those issues, right? They're the best people to speak into what is their system and process and how are they fully understanding the impact that their donation is having. Got it. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about the last 12 to 14 months. Obviously, you know, COVID being what it has been, um, it's been a really challenging year. You talked already about some of the sort of disaster relief uh, work that you did in the States around that. Um, what's the biggest learning that you've had as a leader out of this and how does it, how has it changed you? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been a wild, uh, 12 to 14 months. Like you said, I think that the biggest thing as a leader that I feel like I have understood more than ever before is that people can't perform and thrive in their work if they don't have freedom and flexibility. Hmm. Right. I think that that is something that intrinsically, maybe nobody would have disagreed with prior to COVID, <laughs> but I think seeing how much freedom and flexibility has allowed people to actually thrive in their roles when they have kids in the background and they're helping with virtual learning and they're worried about all of the things going on around them. Um, and so I think as a leader, that has really pushed me to how do I give more of that freedom and flexibility to my team while still working toward really big and ambitious goals? And especially in a virtual world, it's hard because in office, you have those quick conversations. What's going on today? What are you doing? You know, what challenges are happening? And it's hard to translate those virtually without micromanaging, right? And so it's this balance of how are you creating the creating and fostering the conversations that need to happen, especially in a, a manager or a managee kind of role, while also making sure that your people have freedom and flexibility. I once heard somebody say that flexibility is like the ultimate currency, right? And that, <laughs> that is actually what people care about. They can say they care about money or benefits or whatever, but actually if people feel like they have flexibility, that is going to impact more than anything else <laughs> that you could offer them. I think all of that has reminded me, we don't have the control we think we have. <laughs> so get over that uh, and then, you know, make sure that your team has what they need to really thrive. So sort of along the same uh, lines, at least from a timing perspective, you know, not only have we dealt with COVID over the last 12 to 14 months, but um, we've had quite an, a, a cultural awakening around uh, the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm curious to know uh, how New Story has, um, has addressed this and how, how you're navigating those issues in your own organization with your donors and with the people that you serve. I think this is like, of course, one of the most important things any organization can be focusing on. I am so grateful that it uh, has been a hot topic around New Story for many years, not just for the last year. And it's been something, I'd say really over the last kind of two and a half years that we have had more and more of a focus on. And we are for sure not perfect at it. And we definitely have, you know, places to continue to learn and grow and improve 
but it's something we've, we've really been intentional about for a while. And so a, a, a few specific things that may be helpful that we have worked on in our effort toward creating a more diverse and inclusive workspace. Um, one would be having diversity requirements at each step of our pipeline. I think that when we first started realizing that this was an area we could improve, we just started looking at the kind of last stage and what was our uh, makeup of candidates when they got to the last stage. And we pretty quickly realized that that actually wasn't our issue. Our issue was we were failing to get enough diverse applicants mm. in our first stage. And so it was super insightful for us as an organization because we could have spent a long time trying to solve that last step <laughs> when right. what we actually need to solve is what networks are we promoting these roles on? What are, where are our networks? All of these things that really can help that pipeline on the front end ensure that we have a really amazing diverse mix of applicants in the first step and at every step. Um, so that's kind of one just like really tactical thing that we've looked at. And then I think on the flip side, we have put a lot of work into our culture, right? And ensuring once we have the people on the team that they feel welcome and included and they feel like they can bring their full self to work. And this I think is really where the like hard work is because everybody has bias, everybody has preconceived you know, notions and, and all of these things that I think, especially in the last year, it's been easy to feel like, what's the checkbox, right? Like, what is the thing I need to do to fix this? <laughs> and yep. it, that's, you know, as hopefully more and more of us are recognizing, it's not a checkbox. It is a lifetime of work, especially for somebody like me, right? As a white woman who has grown up with a lot of privilege, it's lifetime work, right? It's things that I don't even realize I wouldn't recognize. Perhaps I might not even identify with if somebody said it to me, um, but consistently uncovering opportunities to grow and improve and learn. Um, some of our culture surveys, like I mentioned, help speed this and help identify you know, opportunities to grow. But those are a couple of things that come to mind in terms of how we have navigated um, some of these issues and, and how we're continuing, continually trying to learn and grow in that area. Thank you. So I'm curious as a follow-up, have you started to uh, wade into any of those conversations, say with donors? And, and if so, what, what does that kind of feel like and look like right now? Amazing question. Um, we have not. Okay. We have recognized that we have a very, very white donor base. And that I think goes to that same issue that I just mentioned, right? With some of the like the first step in pipeline, right? Okay, well, what are the networks that are connecting us to these people? Where are we finding them? So on and so forth. And so me as a hiring manager on the fundraising side, it's definitely a spot that I'm working on in the hiring process, because I definitely think that uh, it is on the shoulders of our existing fundraising team, for sure, to have more diverse uh, networks and donor bases and relationships there. But I also think that it is a big opportunity for us to grow our fundraising team and the diversity that we're bringing on to our fundraising team, um, the people they may engage with, the networks they may be a part of to, you know, really grow that as a whole. But yeah, that is definitely one of the big areas that we know we have a lot of work to do on. 
Cool. So I, I, interestingly, I was having this conversation with someone else recently about the fact that, you know, when, when their organization goes out and targets new donors, you know, and they do a lot of like digital uh, paid advertising, things like that. Yeah. The, the, um, the models that they use are based on um, data from the best donors they have today. Right. So you're smiling and, you know, the listeners can't see this, but, but that just caused a big smile because you get it already. When, when we build a model based on the people who are currently sitting in the database, they're typically older, whiter, and male than the, the population, you know, overall representation. So it's an interesting conversation to start having of, you know, how do we, how do we approach, not just from a hiring perspective, but how do we target new audiences that represent the communities that we live in and that we serve when the quote unquote more efficient or, or maybe immediately more effective fundraising approach would be to go to the people who look just like the people who are currently giving. Um, but does that really set us up for success down the road? And, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this last piece, which is oftentimes as well-intentioned as an organization is, they will say, we can't do that today because it's more expensive to do that. Challenge that thought for me for a minute and talk to me about how, you know, maybe you're not implementing it yet, but how you would think about doing that differently in the future. I think that a lot of the problems in terms of the expense happen with your team as well, right? It's the same thing when you're trying to hire people and you're like, we have to get these people up and running and all we have are non-diverse candidates. So we're just going to hire them, right? I think that probably about two years ago, our executive team was at an offsite and we were talking about this problem in regards to hiring. And we left the conversation just saying, we're not hiring for these next three roles unless they're diverse candidates. Mm -hmm. And did it hurt? Yeah, because it took us longer and we had to rethink things and all of this. But ultimately, is our team better for it today because we made that decision? Absolutely. And so I think how that translates to the donor base is it's never going to be quick or easy. But it's a long-term investment you are making in your growth, your sustainability, your uh, the culture of your donors, right? All of these things that ultimately are going to make you better as an organization. They're going to give your donors a better, better experience. They're going to help you learn what are your blind spots, where can you improve, and how you talk to your donors, what you're talking about, right? All of these things. And so I think it's something that is never easy. There's always a reason why you can justify why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> but ultimately, I think it's one of the most high leverage, long-term investments that you can make into your people. And so I would put it kind of in the category as like recur- uh, recurring subscription programs for your nonprofit, right? It's kind of the same thing. The first year, it's not really going to matter, right? It's going to take a lot of work get it up and running. And in terms of your total revenue, it's not going to make that big of a difference. It's on year five when suddenly, you know, those donations are there and you're not having to think about it that you think, why didn't we do this sooner? Right. (laughs) And so it's, it's people's ability and willingness to play the long game and be willing to invest now for future potentials and outcomes um, that are so vital to the growth of your organization. I'm just going to cut that clip and play it on loop in, in my next like 10 meetings. Cause it's so poignant. I, I appreciate the, the way that you frame that. Um, so we're almost about out of time. I want to get your perspective on one other thing though. I'm, I'm curious to know how you and your peers at new story are um, embracing some of the advances in data and technology to both 
improve service delivery, which I know you talked about a little bit already, but, um, but also how, to, how you're using data and technology to improve your fundraising outcomes as well. In terms of our operations team, we have an impact data program that is measuring the impact of homes. So we don't consider it a success just build a home and be done with it. We want to know how does home impact every area of people's lives, children's ability to access education, um, health outcomes, uh, economic opportunities, right? All of these different things. And so on our on the ground operations, I would say that's kind of the number one emphasis there is how are we using our impact data program? to ensure that our outcomes are ultimately better for the individuals that we're serving. On the flip side, I would say with our donor program, we're using all of that information for sure. Our donors love when we go back to them and say, hey, remember that house you funded two years ago? Well, we just got the latest update from the family and um, you know, they have actually been able to increase their income by 60%, right? Mm. What a surprise and delight factor to be able to go back to donors with some of that information. So definitely utilizing the data on our fundraising team. That said, we are currently in the midst of almost trying to go more old school than new school with some of our efficiencies, technology, all of that stuff as it relates to the donor experience. I think that we are especially in a season of people longing for human connection, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're lacking it in so many other areas. And so we are currently working to really revise our systems and processes to give more humanity, (laughs) not less. And so where we're using technology on our fundraising team side is like, how are we setting up reminders and triggers and all of that kind of stuff to make our team more efficient, but we're really trying to be intentional to make sure on the donor side, it doesn't feel more efficient. It actually Mm -hmm. feels like a higher, more personal touch that they're getting, knowing that, you know, people love organizations because of the people behind it often. And so we want to make sure that we're really cultivating those relationships and that people feel like they have that um, understanding of being seen and heard by our team and that they feel really special in their partnership towards this mission and and for impacting families. That's really smart. Yeah, I I think that's exactly what organizations need to be doing. You know, it's ironic. I I was uh, sharing with a friend this morning. I I made a first-time gift to an organization about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. And it wasn't a large gift, right? At least not not in my perspective. Um, And I got a personal email back from someone on their team. And it was, you know, she introduced herself. I could tell it wasn't an automated response, right? right? Introduced herself, thanked me for my gift, told me a story about, you know, how it was going to help. Uh, provided a link to some more information and then said, here's my number and you have my email address. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. And I thought, huh, I know these take time to do, but they're almost guaranteed to get another gift and for me to become fully invested in their, in their work. And I I responded back to her and said, you know, I, I give all the time rare that I get a response like this. You know, so I, I, I tell that story simply to, to affirm the direction you're going and, and, you know, because I think the focus, like you said, of putting more humanity back in that interaction is so important and so valuable. So I'm really glad to hear that that's how you're approaching it. Andrew, let me tell you a really quick story on that yeah. uh, to wrap up here. We, when we're at our best, <laughs> we do lots of really quick videos for donors. So Great. we use a system <laughs> called Loom. It's super easy. One button. Hey, Andrew, just saw your donation come in. Thank you so much. I'm Sarah on the new story team. Really just wanted to let you know we saw it and mean so much, right? Takes less than a minute. Super, super personal and people love it. 
I say when we're at our best because it doesn't always happen. Sure. It's not the greatest system right now. All of these things that we know once you're in the, the nitty gritty of it all. But over the weekend, I followed somebody new on Twitter and he sent me a DM and he was like, Hey, I saw you just followed me. I'm so curious. Like, how did you get connected to me? You know, why did, why did you um, follow me? I also see you work at news stories. So crazy. I donated to y'all like two years ago. I still tell people about the personal video that I got after <laughs> donating. Two years later, right? Yep. Person who reaches out totally randomly. And so you're absolutely right. Those small touch points, you're not going to get a response a lot of the time, right? right? And so in the fundraising seat, you may feel discouraged by do people even care? Do they even notice? You know, but it sticks with people. And that ultimately is what gets people to continue to get to the organization and continue to feel like they're a part of it. So uh, thanks for that uh, affirmation because it's a good reminder with my fundraising team that we need to get back on uh, more, even more of the personal updates and communication and all of those things because I agree. I think people just love it. Awesome. Yeah. So Sarah, I really appreciate you being here. This has been a great conversation. I super uh, appreciate your your insights and, and the, the backstory about News Story. Um, I know that you, uh, at least recently, have been aggressively looking for uh, new talent in the organization. So talk a little bit before you leave about uh, the kind of roles you're looking to fill and how people can get plugged in if they're interested in talking to you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're right, Andrew. I am hiring for a million and one fundraisers <laughs> right now. Uh, so everything from grant writers, major guest officers, campaign specialists, strategic partnerships, if you currently raise money for an organization and you're listening to this and you're held by it, you're interested in joining an organization like News Story, newstorycharity.org forward slash careers has all of our roles. I think that there are nine or 10 roles up there right now. Our social media, which is just at News Story Charity everywhere, we are pretty consistently doing hiring happy hours. So about every two weeks, a few members of our team get on Zoom for about an hour and just share even more about what's it like to work at News Story what are the roles that we're hiring for, all of that kind of stuff. So those would be two places that people can uh, look for. And yeah, we're, we're consistently looking at all the applications that are coming in on the website and pushing people through that process. Really excited about adding more people onto our team so we can impact even more families this year and for many years into the future. Awesome. And lastly, um, if someone is curious and just wants to connect with you directly, is there a way for people to do that? Yeah, they can email me directly, Sarah, Sarah with an H, S-A-R-A-H, at newstorycharity.org. Awesome. Thank you again for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Andrew. It was fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.